Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. What is a para-investigator? Does relying on your own paranormal experiences make you less objective when it comes to understanding the paranormal? One way or the other, what constitutes evidence? Hello and welcome to the 732nd edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno here on 1240 Radio and our 10th year on the air. I'm Ben and those uh, vexing questions came from my co-host, partner in the paranormal, and father, Paul. And uh, today we uh, have a distinguished guest on questions that probe the depths of paranormal research. We welcome your calls today. Numbers are 800-449-1240 from anywhere in the U.S. or Canada, or 401-766-1240 locally, or from anywhere or anyone else. John, <coughs> excuse me, John D'Souza is a former FBI special agent who worked counterterrorism and violent crime cases, maintaining a top-secret clearance for over 25 years. In addition, John investigated and cataloged paranormal experiences for two decades, resulting in what he calls the real-life X-Files. He's the author of three books, The Hearers, The Extra Dimensionals, which we talked about last time John was on the show on August 27th last year. Uh, the recording of that show was inexplicably lost, but we are taking extra pains today to make sure this one is not. That's a very rare occurrence on this show. Anyway, the third title, The Para-Investigators, which we'll talk about today, uh, and we've uh, taken precautions again so the show wasn't lost. John D'Souza's website John JohnTamaBooks.com, J-O-H-N-T-A-M-A-B-O-O-K-S.com. We'll talk about that site a little later, too. So, John D'Souza, welcome back to Behind the Paranormal. Oh, thank you, Paul, Ben. Thank you so much. It's great to be on here with you. Oh, well, it's great to have you back. So let's uh, start off with a relatively seemingly simple question, but not so simple. So what is a uh, para-investigator, and what's the difference between one of them and your garden-variety ghost hunters? A uh, para-investigator is basically a, a regular, regular investigator. It can be a, can be a, uh, a federal agent, can be a police officer, even a security guard, or actually anyone seeking the truth in a mysterious uh, situation or unsolved situation, who actually uses conventional investigative techniques, but also has some paranormal gift or ability that they use in helping people and sometimes even in saving people's lives that's a power investigator okay does anyone our view of, of paranormal gifts so to speak is that everyone has them because they were simply survival instincts that we needed when we were being chased by saber-toothed cats and humongous bears things of this kind does there, does, so then that, by that definition, every investigator would have some paranormal gift. Can you hone that thought down and tell us what paranormal gifts people have learned to use in the situations you've described in, in investigations? In, yeah, sure. In the investigations I've described, uh, things such as, uh, clear seeing, uh, clear hearing, uh, people employ, uh, the ability to see things from the other side of the veil, uh, the remote viewing, uh, things of that sort, extrasensory perception. Uh, but And like you said, everyone has these abilities, absolutely. Uh, but these are investigative situations where these abilities broke through and came into the physical world to assist these investigators at a very crucial moment, uh, in order a moment that made a difference 
and between uh, sometimes between saving people's lives and possibly not. Okay. So essentially, um, what I, what I, I can boil boil this down to one of the key differences between para investigators and you know your garden variety ghost hunters would be a sort of a, a use of gadgets and technology versus um, your your actual senses. Is that is that a good a good analogy or sum up? Oh sure, absolutely. Uh, you know, normal uh, normal investigators do tend to rely on technology. They tend to rely on uh, things that, uh, and basically, they stop there. And uh, we have a lot of that, especially with uh, yeah, with ghost hunting these days. There's a lot of gadgetry involved and so forth. But there is, uh, but there are abilities that the individual can have that uh, can actually surpass the. Uh, what happens with uh, with gadgetry, and uh, one of the things that we see is that uh, t- television has really television programming has really uh, changed what we believe investigation is. Mm. Uh, things like uh, things like CSI uh, and uh, others make us uh, have really trained the public that investigation just means whatever you can put into uh, test tubes. Uh, whatever science can examine and uh, and analyze uh, with their with their gadgets, like you said, and uh, that's and that's not really the uh, the ending of investigations and true investigators. I certainly agree. So, would you call that sort of a, a scientific illusion that is sort of put into uh, the paranormal field? Well, I wouldn't say illusion, but uh, it is uh, it is a crutch. That uh, that tends to stop the query instead of uh, people relying on their on their knowledge, skills, experience, uh, and their and their abilities. And yeah, it does tend to stop stop the uh, the scope of the what investigators use in order to resolve cases. Hmm. Well, it's certainly clear that uh, many of the so-called investigators out there have no knowledge, skills, or experience, or very little. Or read books by other people who have no knowledge, skills, or experience. But that being said, um, one, of the th- one of the questions that arises uh, already here in our discussion, uh, John, is that um, we all know police officers who uh, have been interested in the subject and have, as a matter of fact, we, we, I've been called in on a number of cases over the years by police officers who ran into situations that, that they didn't understand and, and that they didn't feel they could deal with. In fact, it's police officers, psychologists, and clergy, in our experience anyway, who have the most contact with people who are having paranormal experiences. And, and I'm sure you understand what we're saying on that. Now, the, the culture of law enforcement uh, was, and I was in the Coast Guard while, with, you know, which is not exactly the same kind of law enforcement necessarily as you were involved with, but we did work with the FBI uh, from time to time. And th- there was a very, and I, I was very hush-hush about my paranormal research at the time, which was going on even then. Um uh, do you find that the culture of law enforcement, in the sense that, you know, hard-nosed physical evidence will sometimes uh, be something to be overcome before someone calls into play their own gifts, if they're in that field? Yeah, very often that is the case. Uh, but what I've seen, what I've seen more often is just cases where there's just nothing there. There's no, there's no evidence uh, really to speak of, there's no uh, something for authorities to go on, and then uh, someone will step forward uh, from uh, with paranormal abilities and will on the uh, on the QT they will 
quietly uh, be used by law enforcement to further an investigation and to, uh, and to help that situation. And that, that does happen. But I've seen it where it tends to be pretty confidential. And, yeah, these people will be, will be used as volunteers uh, and uh, step forward to give something where sometimes there's nothing. There's nothing there for the investigators to go on. Would you include the cold case psychic, or at least some of them, in the definition of para-investigators? Oh, yes, absolutely. That's, okay. Those are the people I'm talking about. That's okay, all right. Yeah. Cool. I guess that's a big yes. We had Annette <laughs> Martin on the show so, several years ago. As a matter of fact, uh, she, she's one of us. We should probably tell you this after the show was over, but she was a number of guests who died immediately after being on the show. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's a very ominous trend. Uh, Jesse Marcel oh, no. Jr. was a yeah. <laughs> Uh, I'm sure what, what, you'll make it through. Uh, I'm sure you're healthy and young. But uh, in any case, uh, she was, the, as she described it to us, the first cold case psychic uh, whose testimony was accepted in a court of law. Uh, have there been others since then that you know of based on, on the para-investigator model that you've described? You know, are courts of law beginning to take this seriously? I believe that they, I, I believe that they are, but um, to my way, to my anecdotally, anyway, uh, in the FBI, what I have seen is that they tend to be very confidential and keeping keeping uh, the use of psychics uh, quiet oh, yes. as far as they far as they could. Uh, so that's kind of the way I've been seeing. But the uh, information of the psychics uh, have been incorporated into the cases through um, through informants. That that tend that's usually how they tend to filter the information into the case and to help uh, you know to help in these cold cases that you're talking about okay where there are no leads and there is nothing nothing available for the All investigators right. to go on can you give us an example john of uh, a case or cases in which such evidence that is gathered on the qt has led to solid evidence that can be used in court well, in my book, The Para Investigators, I gave uh, many, uh, many uh, uh, examples of investigators that ended up using using uh, their psych- their abilities, their psychic abilities, uh, remote viewing abilities, uh, in order to for positive results that occurred. And but most of them have not been uh, professional psychics; they've just been regular law enforcement officers okay. who, in a moment of crisis, their abilities came out, and one of the ones that uh, one of the ones in my book is the story I call "Death by a Broken Heart," and it is the story of the uh, Olympics, the Olympic Park bombing in uh, in uh, Atlanta, Georgia, in 1996, mm-hmm. where we had a we had a uh, just a regular security guard, a guy named uh, Richard Jewell, mm-hmm. didn't seem like someone who was uh, going to accomplish anything great in life or. Uh, a person of any particular note, but on one night when we had the uh, after party for the Olympics uh, in this park, in a park that had thousands of people, and about one in the morning, about one in the morning, thousands of people, families with kids, uh, and then they were streaming all over that park, a very festive atmosphere, and there were athletes all over the park as well being interviewed by by mainstream media, and uh, we it was a very... Uh, very crowded, festive atmosphere. And in the middle of this, uh, we had this this young man, uh, uh, Richard Jewell, who spotted a giant hiking bag. And he was immediately went on alert, 
uh, he followed extraordinary <laughs> protocol. Uh, he didn't do like a regular security guard would have just hauled the package into uh, into lost and found or anything. Instead, he didn't touch it. He set up a police barrier around it, around the. Uh, it's one of these five foot hiking bags that stands on its own. It's just giant. It's a big thing. It's uh, and it was completely packed. And he set up the police barrier around it, and he started warning people to get out of the perimeter. He called it in as a suspicious package, and he uh, he waited for a response. But people weren't listening to him. Uh, there were, you know, like I said, the park was loaded with families, with kids, and it was a very festive atmosphere. Thousands and thousands of people running back and forth after the Olympic events uh, in that that night. And so he started uh, he started yelling at people. He started yelling at them to get out of the perimeter, not just the inner perimeter, but the outer perimeter as well. And he started telling them, you know, just and he started screaming. He started. Waving is on, and all this stuff is on is on film. Uh, it's been was captured. Yeah, I remember and, it on the news. Yeah, and so people had you know had film of him, and there was also CCTV of him during this time. And he started screaming. He started screaming and waving his arms. He finally started screaming. Uh, this could be a bomb, folks, because people weren't listening. Uh, this could be a bomb. Get out of the area. Get out of the area. He's screaming at the top of his lungs, and people started listening to him finally. And they started getting out of the area completely. And as he was saying that, of course, the, the bomb actually went off. And tragically, one person was killed. Uh, but if he hadn't done what he was doing, it would have been dozens and dozens of people, including children, who would yeah. have been would have been killed. So he was a tremendous uh, hero based on what he did. Uh, and um, unfortunately, there were uh, there were people, uh, law enforcement authorities on the ground, who were watching those watching those films afterwards. And they came to the same conclusion that I did, of course, looking at those films, and which was he knew it was a bomb, which he did. Even he said that himself yeah. uh, later. Uh, the question was, how did he know? Mm -hmm. uh, now, their conclusion, their conclusion after going through all of these things over and over again, uh, was that the only way he could have known it was a bomb was if he was the bomber mm -hmm. uh, uh, in order to become a hero and so forth. Uh, so uh, now my conclusion, seeing the same the same films, was very different. Uh, my conclusion was that he used some remote viewing ability or some kind of paranormal ability to see inside that hiking bag that it was a bomb, because anyone listening to his listening to his voice would come to that conclusion that he absolutely knew it was a bomb, uh, and he himself admitted that later on uh, that he absolute he had absolute knowledge. Of from some kind of some kind of viewing that it was a bomb. Uh, so they, uh, of course, people know the story. They uh, they let out information to the media that he was a person of interest in this, and uh, so the media basically uh, ran with that story. Uh, it went all over the global wires. It was a big it was a big deal, and for eighty eight days, they basically ruined his life. Yeah, destroyed his life uh, instead of being lauded as a great hero that he was, uh, he was excoriated, excoriated in media throughout the, throughout the world, actually, uh, not just in the United States. It was, it was brutal. And after 88 days, of course, people know that uh, the uh, government actually, actually uh, gave a public uh, apology, kind of. Uh, the U.S. attorney stepped forward and said, uh, we're sorry, uh, he is not a person of interest, he, he did not do this. And, of course, Eric Robert Rudolph, uh, a domestic terrorist actually yes. uh, stepped, uh, confessed 
that he had done this bombing, and he was not happy about someone else taking credit for it. <laughs> uh, but it was too late. It, it was too late, though. They had destroyed um, Robert uh, uh, Richard Jewell's health. Uh, his health was broken, and uh, he actually died uh, shortly after this. Oh, that's terrible. Um, at the age of 44. Unbelievable. Jeez. Well, th- th- this is what can happen. I mean, w- once, and, and speaking as a journalist for the last 40 years, you know, you have to be very careful what you say. Today, you know, you're accused of something, you're guilty. And that's not even American, you know. So, anyway, there it is, but uh, that's a tragic story. And we often find that, that psychic abilities, uh, or if you want to call them that, or, or general abilities of this kind, can lead to tragic results, despite the good they can do. So, that's a perfect example. Thank you, John. Mm. Uh, <clears throat> One of the uh, the issues that arises is where the information is coming from in any given case. Uh, it sounds as if Mr. Jewell was simply very perceptive, and uh, I, we never knew him, uh, but he, he, he somehow knew that this was the case, and we have theories about how that can happen. In other cases, though, uh, and maybe you could tell us how many of these you may have run into, people feel they're in touch with entities of some kind, uh, and are, are given information that turns out to be accurate and may save lives or, or solve cases. How, how often have you run into that, percentage-wise, of the cases you've investigated? You know, outside outside well, influences, not just gifts. Well, you know, uh, in law enforcement, and that's why I, I filled uh, the power investigators with examples of yeah. on-duty law enforcement people. And one of the things in that in that milieu is that uh, you have to articulate probable cause, reasonable cause, and they are not allowed to articulate uh, uh, spirits from the afterworld uh, or or some kind of entities from the other side giving them information. They have to be able to articulate, to verbalize that something that is allowed allowed to be in a court uh, is what gave them, is what gave them the information. You're allowed to say, uh, things like uh, gut instinct. Uh, I had a I had a hunch based on reasonable information, articulable information that was given to me. Mm-hmm. They they have to clean it up. And I can tell you the example of the example of red shirt. Uh, red shirt is a story that has been has been going around law enforcement uh, community for a long time. And I was able to track down uh, some of the officers involved in this. And red shirt is just the story of a law enforcement officer who rolled up on a scene where there were numerous uh, drug transactions going on, and they stopped short of this uh, street corner where a bunch of uh, uh, ne'er-do-wells were uh, hanging out on the, with each other, uh, and they were all uh, and they were all trading drugs, having, having a great old time. And so this law enforcement officer, uh, he stopped. He stopped short. Actually, actually it was a woman, actually. Uh, stopped, she stopped short of the scene, uh, by about you know, a couple of a couple of hundred feet, and then uh, and then started looking uh, looking and got out of her vehicle. Somehow they were all alerted that that was a that was five zero that was a law enforcement officer. So they all broke and ran in different directions uh, from the scene. So the individual got on her radio, and she uh, because there were others, they were uh, they were doing some kind of uh, operation, and there were others in the area on foot, and so she radioed out. Uh, guys, uh, get the one in the red shirt. He's got a gun. And it turned out the guy with the, the guy with the red shirt, uh, actually did have a gun deep in a pocket, uh, deep in a pocket in baggy pants, a place that, uh, she could not possibly have seen. 
because he had a big shirt, big pants, and there was no way she could have seen that he had that gun in his pocket. And later, when and of course the person ran, uh, was apprehended by a couple of other officers on another on another corner. Uh, they grabbed him because there was some kind of operation going on in the area. And turns out they got the gun from deep in his pocket where she could not possibly have seen it at all, not even the bulge. And they ended up finding out that that gun had been used in several recent felony crimes. Hmm. And they, so they had the guy for it. But when this officer first came forward, <laughs> she just said, I don't know. She said to her sergeant, uh, I don't know how I knew. Uh, I just, I just got, like you just said, just got like an inspiration from somewhere, from somewhere that I knew that he had a gun in that pocket from 200 feet away, covered by baggy pants and big baggy bulky uh, shirt, uh, sweatshirt, and yet somehow she knew he had a gun in that pocket. Uh, out of all the dozens, a uh, couple of dozen guys that were on that corner, uh, so the sergeant uh, brought her back and uh, educated her on articulating probable cause and what yeah. is allowable language. Yes. Because the, what she said that reflected what you just said, uh, Ben, uh, was not was not permissible in law enforcement. You can't do that. It, not if you expect something uh, a good physical result to come yes. out of uh, come out of apprehending a criminal. Mm-hmm. Do you find, John, that? The people who uh, are able to do this, people who are um, have these gifts, know about these gifts already. Have had previous paranormal experiences. Have used the gifts before, or the, or do they just manifest uh, at that moment when needed, or or is there a mixture of all of the above? Um, most of the stories that uh, that I. Share with people and the power investigators are law enforcement officers who are very physical people, uh, or people, uh, people in security and so forth who are just very physical, material-based people who do not uh, who do not uh, engage in belief systems that involve the paranormal. They just don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, and however, when they are in a terrible crisis. Uh, they will, something will happen, something will change in their demeanor, something will come over them, and an ability that maybe they, maybe they exhibited in the past, but try to ignore, will just, will just break through, and, uh, it will make a huge difference at a moment of crisis. And, uh, I have, um, uh, for instance, I have the uh, story of Throw It Down, uh, story of a police officer, uh, a uh, federal agent named Courtney. Who was? Uh, who turns out uh, she is what we call a clear hearer. She had a clear audience. She mm-hmm. has a, uh, the ability to hear a great voice of authority that will come forward and help and help the individual uh, during times of crisis. Uh, and uh, what happened to her was she was sent uh, during a multi-jurisdictional uh, police operation. She was sent to guard the back, and she was told to watch that window, second floor window, and she had the shotgun. And uh, you know she was a she was a probationary officer, which is uh, somebody recently starting, uh, who's in a tenuous uh, position. And she was guarding that window, watching it. And uh, suddenly she felt uh, she was in an alley. Uh, she heard on her radio. She had it turned down, uh, but she could still hear a little bit of the uh, them crashing the front door and uh, doing the uh, police uh, jurisdictional thing there. And uh, she, but she scarred that window, and suddenly she felt a shadow pass over her, 
and it was a young a young man who had the drop on her. He had a gun, uh, and she swung around. I'm gonna have to stop you there because we have to take our bottom of the hour break, John. But that's Got a little exciting. Okay. Come right back. All right, so. We are listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WON 1240 in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley. We're in our 10th year on the air and having a a wonderful conversation with John D'Souza, FBI special agent formerly, uh, who is a, has written some great books we're going to talk about as soon as we come back. So stick with us. Hey, music lovers, it's Dave Russell. Please note the day and time and spread the news. That good music is alive and well every Sunday on ON 1240 from 10 a.m. to noon on my new run with Sinatra. It's been a long nine years since the last time, but Frank hasn't aged a day. And talk about good music. You're assured of hearing the best because we only choose the prime cuts from Frank's incomparable career. So it's 10 to noon on Sundays with Frank and Dave and you, I hope. Okay, we're back behind the paranormal now, and uh, I'm not even going to say anything. And let's get right back into the story. The hated commercial, right when you're about to have the touchdown, right? So, <laughs> of course. So, so John, please oh. continue. Now, the, the, this this evildoer has a drop on this young officer. Please continue. Uh, so he basically had uh, he got the drop on her. His pistol was right in her face. I mean, just uh, just a couple of feet away from her. And she had the shotgun in her, in her, basically holding across her lap, uh, with her hands down. And so she just, she froze, basically. And it seemed like a moment from, an eternal moment. And that gun looked, it looked like a cannon in her face. It just got bigger and bigger. And the young man just seemed like he didn't know what to do. Uh, she, in that moment, she got a realization that the window she was watching, this instead of somebody coming out of that window, uh, this young man was coming to crawl in that window. That's why he was looking at the same window as uh, he would furtively glance that way, and he was looking up at the same window that she was watching. So now they were at a standoff, and suddenly she hears, well, no, I'm sorry, she didn't hear, she felt this enormous booming voice that just said, throw it down. And she didn't, she looked at the young man's lips, and there was nothing coming from there. And she heard again, throw it down. And she didn't, she didn't understand where this perceived voice was coming from. And she, uh, there was a third time that it said, throw it down. And this time her, her arms reacted. Uh, she didn't feel like there was any thought involved, but she, she threw the, the rifle, the shotgun, to the ground. And it clattered there, and it just stayed there. And that seemed to wake up the young man out of a out of like a hypnotized state. The young man was holding the gun on her. He just kind of started. He startled, and he looked at the gun on the ground and tossed the uh, pistol into his into his pocket and spun around and ran off and ran as far as as fast as anybody she'd ever seen. And he was gone out of that alley. And without really understanding what had just happened. Uh, she picks up her, picks up her shotgun, uh, goes back inside. Uh, they had up the, uh, the chart of all the suspects inside the, uh, inside the, uh, apartment that they had broken into. Uh, and they kind of set it up as a sort of a mini command center. And, uh, everyone was apprehended and she was relieved to see that that young man was not on that chart. His picture was not there. And she didn't tell anybody what had heard. Uh, she was on, pro- she was a pro- 
probationary agent, and uh, she felt like uh, she uh, would have gotten in major trouble, and she could not deal with her uh, with her compatriots, uh, the things that they would say if they ever found out. And when she told me that story, it was the first time she had ever told anyone about that story. And uh, she said, uh, and she asked me, uh, she told me she she felt uh, like she had done wrong, and. Uh, I was able to talk to her about these uh, great voice experiences that some people have, and I was able to reassure her that she was not, she was not, uh, she had not exhibited any cowardice. Uh, that she had actually simply obeyed the voice that came to her, uh, that was actually probably trying to save her, and not just save her, but probably the other consequences that would have followed if the uh, if if the uh, situation had gone. A different way, and uh, when I advised her that many people have had the similar experiences to what she had with this this great voice, this clear hearing experience that comes to her, uh, and that had come to her in other other situations as well, uh, that it's a common experience, and that it's always something that's for the person's good, and that uh, sometimes when that voice comes, there's not uh, we don't have that much uh, discretion to not listen. Uh, because it's a very powerful force that is there is there to really save people and help people and it was uh, there was an enormous relief that I saw on her face uh, when she when I was able to tell her these things and uh, she uh, she felt much better about the situation and uh, I think what she did was probably the best course uh, and I and I think it probably saved quite a few lives not just hers but uh, probably lives of others as well. Yeah, hmm. wow. Well, uh, go ahead, man. Oh, I was just going to say, before before we burn up this hour, we, we with such fascinating conversation and questions, uh, John, why don't you tell us about your, your books, uh, projects, website, wh- whatever it is you're working on next? Oh, sure. My uh, website is johntamabooks.com, uh, and uh, that is where I... Uh, that is where I have my books. My books are The Power Investigators, uh, the, um, the Extra Dimensionals, uh, about uh, alien visitors and what they're really, what they're really doing, according to what I found out from the government, uh, and uh, The Clear Hearers, which is, about, uh, which is about people who have these encounters with the great voice and how, the, uh, and how these results uh, tend to help people and save lives as well. And yes, I have uh, have several many uh, several projects coming up uh, where people will be able to talk to me. Uh, I have um, I'll be uh, doing an appearance uh, in April and, uh, for the George Nury Show in uh, Scotland, in Scottsdale, Arizona. Mm-hmm. Uh, that'll be coming up, and many many other projects that are coming up, uh, including Contact in the Desert, of course, which is yeah. coming up, and that uh, that will be an epic weekend with many, many uh, great names in the paranormal. I'll be looking forward to that. Very good. Yeah, we uh, did, did not receive the para-investigators, so we're at a disadvantage there, but the... Uh, the um Okay, uh, Ben's signaling me here, but uh, we and but the other, uh, I guess it was probably your first book, the extra dimensionals. That's what we did a show on last year. Excellently written, okay. excellent book, and uh, recommended highly to everyone. Um, so, John, uh, getting back to our discussion here, have you ever ha- encountered uh, a case wherein the officer or whoever is involved has had a bad result from the use of their gifts? 
in any particular case? Oh yeah, absolutely. Okay, can you uh, give us my, one or two examples of that? Sure. In the uh, in the power investigators, I have a uh, there's a difficult uh, story called the Gray Baby, uh, which is actually about a state trooper uh, who was uh, who was in the Southwest here and who appeared to for most people to be a uh, regular, very um, <clears throat> a very macho, domineering kind of police officer, a no nonsense kind of guy, as as many as most state troopers are. And unfortunately he he had a he had a uh, well kind of a secret. He was psychically sensitive and would pick up signals from people and from criminals as far as things that they were uh, thinking, things that they were planning, and that was just something he kept to himself. He was not anxious to display it or use it. And it was something he kind of suppressed, uh, basically for as long, for as long as he could. And what happened to him was one day he was on one of our, one of the highways here and he was pulled over in a cubby hole, uh, just waiting for speeders, just hanging out waiting for speeders. And there was a Chevy that went by him, by his hidey hole. It's about, you know, over a hundred miles an hour. And, uh, he was rousted and, uh, wow, he had to go and, and, uh, pursue this vehicle until he finally until he finally pulled it over and he was approached the vehicle like he would normally do and the um the windows were already rolled down on this dilapidated uh old chevy and he kind of he walked up to it and there was no one in the front seat no driver and well there was something in the back seat so he figured uh, the person jumped jumped back there for some reason and he, it was very, um, and when he approached this car, they came right up to the window. He felt like he passed through something. The air changed. Uh, his, his own demeanor changed. He felt a chill and the sun just went away and everything, just the pervading gloom just came over that vehicle and him as he came close to it. He could barely see uh, light in the back of that vehicle and there was someone crouched over in the back uh, it appeared to be in shadows and there was someone crouched over in the back and they had something in their arms uh, so now he had been shouting commands the entire time to no one apparently because there was no one in the front seat and now he sh- he became alarmed he put his hand on his holster and he shouted to the driver well the uh, supposed driver uh, he shouted uh, you've got to said, um, come on, come on out of there, or, or rather, show me your hands, show me your hands, uh, because they were, they had something in their arms. And he said, show me your hands, show me your hands. You've got to, uh, you know, driver, I've got to see your hand. And uh, the individual that was in the back uh, leaned forward. He could see a little more what they looked like. It looked like a cadaverous sort of uh, countenance. It was just uh, someone, um, it, it appeared to be a woman. Uh, and it was just someone who had, uh, they just looked skeletal. And the person uh, was uh, just uncurled, one uh, thrust forward, and had. it seemed like they had preternaturally uh, long arms because they thrust forward this bundle they had been holding in their arms and put it forward out of the window, right at his face. And he just, he just, recoil it was it appeared to be 
something that had been a bait uh, a long time ago, but was was dead for a long time. It was dead. It was a, there was trickle of dry blood from its lips. It was swaddled in a blanket, and it was a it was a baby. Uh, it had been dead for so long that it was actually grayish in color. And she and he heard he heard from her. You'll wake the baby. And this thing, he, he was hit by a wall of, of odor that he had never felt before. It felt, he said it felt like tear gas. It was so strong, the odor of death. It just buckled his knees. And he just said, oh, my God, and just backed up. And he reversed his orders. He, he backed up, and he said, he screamed to the driver, get back, get back in the, in the back seat. Stay there. Keep your hands. Keep your hands where I can see them. And he just backed up all the way to his vehicle. Uh, the the smell was like a living thing. It was the most horrendous thing he'd ever experienced. And he backed up to his vehicle and he called for help. He called for help to everyone, to his own agency and to any other police agencies, fire, rescue, ambulance. Uh, he called for help and uh, he just stayed back at his car. And truthfully, that that uh, woman in the back and her and the dead baby uh, could have just sauntered out. He was not going to encounter them or block them again. Uh, his his compatriots, uh, state troopers, uh, got on the scene. Uh, he was sitting with his car, blocking his view from the uh, woman who was just whispering to the baby in the back seat. And he just and his compatriots came up to him. Uh, he appeared distraught, and they were happy to tell him. Hey, there was nothing you could have done to, to help that baby, to save that baby. Um, uh, the baby had been dead for a long time. This was a woman who had escaped from a police uh, jurisdictional uh, uh, entry, and uh, she just grabbed some amphetamines, and the, and the baby that had been dead for quite a while swaddled it and took off uh, when everyone else was uh, was arrested in this, uh, this sort of drug house. Uh, and uh, she'd just been driving for a couple of days. And he was, uh, so they told him, don't worry about the baby, you know, there's nothing. And he said, he's not, he wasn't worried about the baby, he was worried about himself. Uh, and he, and he kind of guarded what he said to his compatriots, but they could see that he was not, uh, anyway, when they pulled her out of the back seat, uh, she was fine. She was very, uh, this uh, young woman was very, uh, even though she looked, uh, she looked cadaverous. Uh, but they pulled her out of the back seat. She was fine. Was, and then when they tore, took the baby, uh, the baby's body away from her, she uh, was the first time that she responded. Uh, she started screaming, don't take our baby, don't take our baby. And he looked at her, and she locked gaze with him. And she looked right into his eyes and said, don't let them take our baby. And then they took her off, and, and they took the baby's body as well. And what had happened was he said, he said that that baby was some kind of malevolent presence, uh, that it had, he felt that it had called him to that scene so that it could make contact with him. Because when that baby was thrust into his face, he felt like that thing, um, there was something alive there, and it crashed through his consciousness and entered his consciousness because he had had all kinds of problems since that moment and uh, actually had to 
end up leaving the uh, leaving the state troopers on a psychological disability. Uh, he was haunted by that uh, by that gray baby ever since that time, and he had repeated uh, nightmares and visions of that same scene happening over and over again. But each time, the gray baby was thrust in his face. Uh, it would open its eyes. It would sometimes speak to him. It would make it clear that uh, it was claiming him in some sort of way or, or claiming a permanent connection with him and really, uh, really haunted him because it knew, uh, apparently it knew his, his secret that he was psychically sensitive and that's why it brought him there. And the result was tragic. That's the most tragic result you can get because it basically, um, that experience uh, destroyed his uh, his job there in law enforcement, and he was basically out. He was out after that on a, that's on a psych. A, that's about as uh, negative a story as I've heard in a long time. Right yeah, out of Alfred Hitchcock, absolutely. for heaven's sake, you know? Wow. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> well, and what's funny is that I was told later that uh, the uh, gr- that uh, gray baby experience is actually a common is actually a uh, common uh, supernatural phenomena out An of archetype. Asia. Yeah. yeah, out of Asia. It's uh, and they and I have the name somewhere. It's uh, starts with an M, and it's it's a common. Supposedly, it's you're not supposed to leave dead babies unattended for more for more than more than a day uh, before you you tend to them because there are some kind of demon entities that specialize in inhabiting dead babies and using them for nefarious purposes. That's like a Tibetan this. Buddhist belief to some degree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's actually in the Philippines, it's actually in the newspaper. Sure. Yeah, oh, yeah. Real it's, thing. It's common, yeah. The idea of the paranormal archetype, of which that's one, I, I have never run into it myself, uh, fortunately, but uh, it, is, it is known uh, more common in our culture would be the man in the checkered shirt, the little girl with the blonde hair who turns out to be a parasite, and you know things of that kind. So they are, the paranormal archetypes, as we call them, are are very potent, and uh, can almost be related to the topa. Yeah, actually, you know, the uh, I can form, supposedly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, well, thank you for sharing that. As grisly as as it was, John, John. In some of the case, we still have a few more minutes. In uh, in cases that you've encountered, do you ever run into what could be called the time slip? as a method to get to the truth in a case? Uh, no, I'm not sure what the time slip is. Okay, well, if you have, uh, well, you, you've discussed a great deal about clairaudience, clairsentience, as we might call it. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- mm-hmm. This would be an experience of um, uh, perhaps the person, uh, the the, uh, the officer or the investigator experiencing uh, uh, a, a prior or even a future moment in time that sheds light on what actually happened in a given case. Uh, that's not too common, as I understand it, but I wondered if you'd run into it. Well, the, uh, the, the greatest, most impactful, widespread experience of, of, future, uh, of future seeing, of seeing events in the future, is the uh, one that I start out my book with, The uh, Indigo Kids of 9-11 which was basically um, when the 9-11 attacks occurred in 2001, uh, in, the, in just the weeks and just the days before, uh, before 9-11 happened, we had reports, uh, well, actually the reports were after, uh, we had dozens and dozens of kids who all around the country 
who and I'm talking little kids here. I'm talking ages from like uh, from like uh, six years of age to twelve. I mean, young young kids who had precognizant experiences. They had visions. They had uh, just uh, uh, dreams and experiences of what was about to occur on 9/11, and these things manifested with them. And then uh, when 9-11 happened, we set up all these intel centers all over the country, manned by police officers, FBI agents, and many others, many other agencies. And people were encouraged to call in anything suspicious that had happened right around the time of the 9-11 incidents. Uh, and uh, people weren't told anything. didn't matter how small, you know, just reported in at all uh, so that we can uh, get to the uh, bottom of this sort of thing. And people... And there were people who called in caretakers, who called in uh, the experiences of these little kids. Uh, and, I, and I'll tell you, uh, we had one little boy, and uh, if you go on my Facebook, uh, I have the actual trailer of the uh, of the draw with drawings that were that had happened. Uh, one little boy uh, created a finger paint uh, in his class. Uh, he was, and, he, and the teacher came over to him and said, uh, "Oh, this is very beautiful. This." Uh, these Two tall buildings are glowing. They're glowing, and uh, you appear to have angels with red wings flying out of these, flying out of these buildings. Where are they going to? And the little boy said, "Those buildings aren't glowing. Those buildings are on fire. And these aren't angels with wings. These are people who are also on fire, and they're jumping out of buildings." So, teacher walks away from a child like that, doesn't think more of it until 9/11 happens, and then she uh, calls it in. We had another little girl that was on a playground she was keeping to herself and she was just kind of tracing uh things in the dirt and the teacher's assistant comes over to her and says uh are you okay sweetheart are you are you all right what's going on and she said the little girl said to the teacher's aide oh i'm fine i'm, I'm just thinking and the teacher goes to walk away and the little girl pulls on her skirt violently and says tomorrow make sure you stay away from tall buildings because tall buildings sometimes fall down and they fall on people. So the teacher's aide doesn't think much about that until 9-11 happens and then actually calls it in. We had a school bus driver who was driving uh, all the kids to school, and this one little boy, who's usually the first off the bus, uh, was stayed in the back. He was asleep. And when the uh, bus driver comes back to wake him up, uh, to get him off, uh, to get him off to school, he, uh, the little boy wakes up yeah, from a nightmare, uh, yelling about people on fire uh, falling out of buildings. And again, these were, these kids were all called in, not by their parents, but they were called in by caretakers, and they had to be interviewed. There was no discretion on that. Uh, we had to have a 100% coverage rate on any of these, mm. uh, these leads that were called in. So you had big strapping uh, police officers and FBI agents, people with guns who had to go, and uh, and talk to an eight year old with his parents there, of course, and get them to remember first of all this incident that most of them had put out of their minds, and get them to articulate what the experience, what the dream was, or what the drawing, what made them make that drawing, because we had to check them for any possible connection to terrorism and their families for any possible connection to terrorism, just in case these children had been just reflecting what they heard from adults. Uh, who were possibly you know, involved with terrorist acts. So in every, we had dozens of these cases, and in every single case, uh, the there was no connection to terrorism from the child or the family. 
mm-hmm. that were involved. And so the paranormal explanation that they had had, uh, similar to the time slip that you're talking about, that they had had an actual precog experience uh, telling them uh, that, that explanation, telling these children what their experience was. Uh, that explanation was the only one left, the paranormal explanation. And that was true in every single one of these cases, amazingly. Yeah. Did you ever have a, I have a number of questions, but we're pretty much out of time. But did you ever have any, you know, sort of fee- blowback from people who just, you know, in in the FBI particularly, who just didn't want to accept this kind of thing? I know most law enforcement officers we know understand that the uh, cold case psychics and stuff exist, and they can be valuable. Did you ever have, have any uh, any grief from people in the FBI about approaching things like this? Oh sure, you know there's always uh, there's always uh, people who want to uh, demonstrate that the uh, the one way of thinking about reality is the only way there is. Mm. Uh, but I always I always like to say that uh, I I started working paranormal cases very early on in the FBI, and so it was something that I was always resigned to. I was always uh, accustomed to. Uh, that's why I had. Uh, that's why the uh, X Files had contact with me early in my career and used uh, used some of my uh, material mm. uh, in their show when they were first starting out, uh, and that's that's a whole another story. But I always like to say that uh, with other law enforcement officers, I was very often ridiculed in public, but consulted in private. Uh, okay, they well, would, uh, you know, and that's just the way it was because yeah. no, no, everybody's got paranormal thing. Yeah, everybody. Well, John, uh, it's been, uh, I'm afraid we're out of time. It's been a terrific conversation. We'll just have to do another show because we have more questions. So thank you so much, and uh, we'll be in touch off the air. All right. Thank you so much. Give us your website one more time, please. My website is johntamabooks.com. Very good. uh, That's where my books are available and all my stuff. Excellent. Thank you, sir. We'll be uh, in touch off the air. All right. Very good. Thanks, Paul and Ben. Okay. Thank you. All right, uh, it's our announcements uh, here where we've got uh, the next, our next book coming up, Dancing Past, the, or my next book, actually, Dancing Past the Graveyard, Poltergeist, Parasites, and Parallel Worlds. Uh, ben and I are playing more books in the Behind the Paranormal series, but he's going to sit this one out because it happened uh, before he was born or when he was too little to notice. So, Yeah, there was not much that, that baby Ben could add to it. So. <laughs> Plan to meet us uh, May 26th and 27th at the Saucer Symposium at the KRI Center for Consciousness Studies in Stratham, New Hampshire. And there will be some great speakers, including Shane Searway, Andy Kitt, and many others you've heard on this show. And uh, this is uh, the fourth year in a row we've spoken there, and we'll present uh, some new material on our flap area cases. And we'll also do our second annual live broadcast from there on, uh, ju- on uh, the 27th with a panel of speakers. And you can watch for more information as those dates approach. And uh, it's always a good time for reading and gift giving. Uh, we certainly encourage you to uh, send people uh, John D'Souza's books. Uh, it's uh, it's amazing stuff, and he's an amazing guy. Basically, the real life Fox Mulder. Yeah, really. So please consider autographed copies of our books. Uh, they're widely available, but if you order them online at either of our two websites, that's behindtheparanormal.com or newenglandghosts.com, we'll be happy to autograph them for you. Uh, there are those books include the, the two so far in the Behind the Paranormal series, uh, Behind the Paranormal: Everything You Know Is Wrong, published in 2016, available in stores and from online retailers. And then there's uh, last year's book, Behind the Paranormal Two: Bigfoot, Mothman, and Monsters You Never Heard Of. That's currently available from online retailers, uh, Amazon.com, Kindle, and all these other great 
things. Uh, also available are books I wrote myself in Days of Yore, Faces at the Window, Footsteps in the Attic, about my cases in the 60s and 70s, and 80s, not 60s, but 70s and 80s, along with Turning Home, God, Ghosts, and Human Destiny, with a few more cases and a broad look at what the paranormal might really mean for all of us. And uh, <clears throat> also for the local audience, particularly Rhode Island, a genial history uh, is out there, which I wrote uh, 2005 with Glenn Laxton, the late Glenn Laxton, a great uh, TV reporter and historian. And that deals with some of the more bizarre characters and incidents in the long life of this unique little state, uh, which I sometimes refer to as the Magic Kingdom of Rhode Island. Uh, the book is used in several school districts, much to my surprise. Uh, that's also available online at BehindTheParanormal.com, uh, etc., so, uh, Ben, what uh, we have coming up next week? So, uh, next week, we have, uh, that is on uh, Sunday, uh, March 11th, we'll welcome back our good friend Peter Robin, uh, Robbins, I should say, yep. UFO researcher and one of the greatest living experts on the mysterious uh, psychologist and paranormal researcher, Wilhelm Reich. Oh, I just wanted to mention, too, I almost forgot to mention that on oh, BehindTheParanormal.com, uh, you can also get uh, 700 more than 750 hours, if you have the time, of our shows from CBS uh, and WON 1240 here from the, our 10 years on the air, which were pretty much approaching that anniversary, and uh, all sorts of different subjects. They're all available free, uh, BehindTheParanormal.com. Check those out as well. Also, our uh, charities we've adopted, too, uh, they're there as well, too. Uh, so, okay, we have uh, Wilhelm Reich coming up next week uh, via Peter Robbins, and we leave you this afternoon with a word from the great British author C.S. Lewis, author of The Chronicles of Narnia. Education without values, is u- as useful as it is, seems only to make man a more clever devil. I'm Paul Eno. I'm Ben Eno, and thanks for joining us this week, and we'll see you next time, Behind the Paranormal. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition.